Hi there, this is Susan Schultz from the University of Iowa, and I'm delighted today to contribute to the Geriatric Lecture Series. I'll be talking about the difficult issue of the management of behavioral disturbance in dementia and the complexities in antipsychotic use in caring for the older adult. And my hope today is to end with consideration of the quality equation or how we can try to put things together in a way that optimizes the quality of life for the older adult. So my disclosures today um, include no financial interests or relationships, but I will add that I will be discussing pharmaceuticals that are not approved for use by the FDA. And by that, I mean that the FDA has not specifically approved antipsychotic medications for the indication of behavioral treatment in dementia. There is technically an FDA indication that psychosis in dementia could be a target of treatment, but no drug has yet reached approval for that indication by the FDA. So as we consider both treating behavior and using medication for behavior in the elderly, it's important to consider the whole picture of treating the older adult. And what we have found in many studies is that older adults in particular have a very high response to a placebo effect of any intervention, whether it's medication or otherwise. And as we think through this today, we can understand why the placebo effect exerts itself and how it may influence outcomes as we try to understand not only clinical trials, but what we are seeing in the clinical environment in terms of intervention outcomes. Now, the science is very intriguing in the sense that the placebo effect that is commonly seen in clinical trials, and by that we usually mean that the non-active treatment or the treatment that does not include the, either the compound or the agent of interest, such as a pill that has no active um, effect on the individual, that's a placebo effect when a person responds to the arm of treatment that does not include the, the active investigational agent. When we've done studies that have looked at that effect, it's interesting that even at the brain pathway level, for example, serotonergic pathways have been observed to be activated when patients have a placebo response to a treatment trial that includes a serotonergic agent or an antidepressant um, compound. And it seems then that there are very real effects in the brain that a person can in fact feel a response and even demonstrate a very real treatment response even when the treatment is not active in our view. Similarly, we know from studies of addiction and other reward-inducing behaviors that the brain also releases dopamine in anticipation of a reward event. 
So we know that the brain is very responsive to the conditioning and expectations of the environment. And it's very intriguing to think about what we usually consider more of a psychological phenomena really does have biomarker evidence that the brain does respond to expectations. So when we consider that, we can think about brain responses as well as placebo arms of treatment trials often include more psychosocial attention and a different you know, expectation of the, the person involved in, in the treatment as well as expectations of the family, caregivers, and providers knowing that a patient is receiving some type of intervention, experimental or otherwise. So when we think about how our patients respond to literally anything we do, we have to appreciate that there's, there's an effect of just having that interaction and the expectations of that interaction. And in an older adult in particular, we've observed that older adults are particularly responsive to conditioning and expectations and the meaning and context of treatment. So when we consider now how these placebo effects might play into when we test medications or when we ourselves try a new avenue in treatment, we have to think about how that affects our outcomes and perceptions of what we're doing. It's very possible that many of the treatment trials that have tried to show efficacy compared to placebo we're not influenced so much by lack of efficacy. It's very possible that our treatment trials do have good medication effects, but if the placebo receiving group is also responding to being in the trial, that can lead to a conclusion that there's no advantage to adding various medications. However, it's very difficult to account for or control for the effect of the placebo response to being in a treatment trial. It's very possible that this whole situation has contributed to the fact that we do have off-label prescribing when we use behavioral medications for the treatment of psychosis and behavior in dementia. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the FDA has not approved medications for use in dementia behaviors or not approved a use for the indication of psychosis in Alzheimer's disease. And it's possible the fact that we do have to prescribe with an off-label use of these medications, partly because the placebo impact on clinical trials could have affected the ability to achieve an FDA indication or at least in individual trials see a positive result of medication. Now, it's impossible to know exactly what all the factors that come into play might be, and certainly there are very real concerns about lack of efficacy of antipsychotics in dementia, and we'll talk about that. And there are also very significant concerns about safety of using medications and adverse events in dementia. So all of these issues together are really what we have to think about in the complexity of deciding on an intervention for behaviors in dementia, and then how to figure out what's the best way to document our progress when we are trying to achieve results with those medications. 
or the intervention in general. And I think that's really the challenge for mental health providers, which is to understand what are we trying to achieve when we start an intervention for behaviors, and how do we document in a way that shows either our success or our lack of success. And so we sort of need to understand the context in which we operate, not just in trying to understand recommendations from drug trials, but also sort of understanding what we expect, what our patients are expecting from the intervention we're doing, and what their families and care providers are expecting from our intervention. And unless we understand all those different factors, we may not be charting the right outcome measures, and we may actually be failing to capture our own progress or lack thereof with individual patients. So I think a new way to think about patients that maybe isn't all that new is to have more of a global perspective and not look at medications as just one factor, but the whole context of care. And as we think about perception and the context of care, you know, the environment in which an intervention is implemented can have an incredible impact on what result we actually measure. So there's a very interesting study I'll describe that's not about medications and dementia, but it talks about the expectations and outcome of older adults depending on what their perception and what their information about um, their own performance uh, might be. And so what I'll describe for you briefly is a very interesting study that conducted cognitive testing in older adults. And the cognitive testing occurred in a large group of normal older adults who were all known to have normal cognition at the start of the study. And what I'll explain about this study that's very intriguing is among those adults, they were tested for APOE4 allele. Now, we know that the APOE4 allele is associated with a higher risk of progressing from normal cognition to a dementia, usually the Alzheimer's type. In this particular study, when they had a very large group of normal older adults, they told a portion of the group that they were APOE4 positive because they had tested the whole group. And among those that were positive, a group of them were told that they were positive. And that was part of this particular study conducted by Lineweaver and colleagues that they knew when they entered the study that they would have APOE4 testing and that they would be told at some point the result of that testing. And what was intriguing in this group is that among those who were told that they had the risk factor, they actually were shown to perform worse on cognitive testing, both in their own perception and in the actual objective testing measures, compared to the a same group of also normal individuals who had not yet been told, but who were also positive. Now, let me go through that a little bit more um, in detail, because it was a very interesting study that essentially told us, or demonstrated in this study, that being told you have a risk for some type of occurrence may actually have an effect on your own performance that is in line with that expectation or that knowledge. 
So to review this study, there was a very large group of normal older adults who did not have dementia, and those folks were tested to as to whether they had the ApoE4 allele in their genotype or did not have the ApoE4 allele. And of those two groups that were positive or not positive, a subgroup within each was either told they had it or not yet told until the end of the study what the result was. None of these groups at entry into the study had any significant difference in their cognitive or memory performance. But among those where their positive result was disclosed, they scored more poorly on objective measures of logical memory, immediate and delayed recall. So these are standardized memory tests. They actually scored lower than the group that was also E4 positive, but not told yet that they had it. Now, among those that were E4 negative, if they were told that they did not have the allele or not told, they all performed about the same. And in fact, the people who were positive but not told yet performed about the same as well as the negative group. And again, the group in general did not differ, but the fact that the at-risk group to later have dementia, who were told that they had the E4 allele before testing, um, actually performed a bit worse. Now, this is fascinating to think about how our own perceptions of our memory performance can change the way we perform in day-to-day -day life. And in a very simple way, you can think of this as sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you go into some new activity thinking, I'm not going to be very, perhaps I'm not going to be good at this, or maybe, you know, maybe I'm not right for this job or this task or, or what have you, um, that that perception in and of itself can influence the way that a person behaves in that activity. So it's very, very fascinating to think about this particular study which did not involve medications, but involved simply an expectation that was given to a person based on knowing their own genetic uh, predispositions. So I think that gives us some context to think about even the way that we interact with our patients, the way that we frame what we expect of a given treatment. The patients may often tend to reflect back or to share in the expectations that we have for their treatment. And by the same token, it's very important then to identify if patients have a negative view of a certain treatment or a negative perception of some type of environmental factor or other intervention, that that in fact may have bearing on the outcome that is achieved um, from that particular course of treatment. So now as we switch to think about how this applies to medication trials, we can also take a look at some of the antipsychotic trials and think about how during participation in some of these treatment trials with medications might actually affect the outcome of that trial. So I think that's part of the complexity of thinking about behavioral care in dementia is to think about all these different ways that outcomes can be influenced. So if we think now about the treatment phase outcomes from the KDAD trial, 
Now, the KDAD trial, um, to give you the background framework on that, that is the Clinical Antipsychotic Treatment Intervention Effectiveness Trial for Alzheimer's Disease. And that treatment trial compared quetiapine, olanzapine, and risperidone with an initial placebo arm in that trial. And the idea of that trial was to try to understand, is there a particular choice that used for agitation or psychosis in dementia that seems to have better efficacy in a real-world setting than any others? So again, it compared quetiapine, olanzapine, and risperidone with a placebo arm using clinician-guided care to try to understand differential treatment effects in Alzheimer's disease. Now, the short story conclusion is that no one treatment in a global situation, thinking about both adverse events and um, as well as tolerability and um, symptom changes, there was no one treatment that stood out. But as we look more carefully in some of the published results from that study, we can also think about how clinicians perceive that trial and how the participants also were influenced by being in the trial. So when we look at a very interesting paper by David Sulzer and colleagues that looked more carefully in the first phase of that trial where the three drugs were compared to placebo, there was an interesting observation that in the first arm of the trial, when placebo was included, a patient had a participant in that trial knew that if they proceeded and switched to another drug in that trial, phase two of the trial had only active medications. The phase two arm of the trial, if a person was not responding appropriately or not tolerating the first phase, the second phase of the trial included the three medications, no longer included placebo, but had a citalopram arm. So what was observed as we looked at clinician behavior in that study is that clinicians tended to switch to another study drug, that is, switch them into phase two, even when you looked at individual symptom rating scales, there were slight improvements that were already happening in the treatment arms prior to the clinician switching a patient into phase two. So it's interesting to think that there may have been a perception either that treatment response was not happening fast enough or that it would be preferable to move to a second phase of trial where treatment um, active drug was the only options, that all options were active. So it's interesting to consider whether expectations in the first phase of the trial had been influenced by the fact that there was a chance of getting placebo in the first phase. And that makes us think back to our expectations about treatment. Is it possible that if we expect a result very quickly in treatment, that we may in fact switch out of a medication choice even when we may have seen a result or if we were documenting specific individual target symptoms, perhaps there is slight improvement over time that we can't quite detect and perhaps if we wait just a little bit longer and measure those slight improvements, we might achieve a result that we wouldn't have achieved otherwise.
And so we need to think about what our own expectations are and also counsel families so that they don't expect a drug effect to happen within a day or whatever would be reasonable for a particular intervention so that our expectations match what is really appropriate to expect from a given intervention. Similarly, in another treatment trial that looked at a risperidone-specific trial in persons with Alzheimer's disease with psychosis or agitation that was conducted by Devanon and colleagues, that particular trial also had a placebo arm and in that trial, all patients were stabilized on risperidone for 16 weeks before moving into a next phase of the study that could also include placebo. In that particular study, it was observed that when people moved into that second phase, 60% of those on the placebo arm that didn't, they didn't know if they were on placebo or not, um, were withdrawn over the next 16 weeks due to either a problem or a recurrence of symptoms. Um, however, 30% also dropped out over the next 16 weeks. And perhaps those 30% were also concerned about staying in the trial because in fact there was a placebo arm to that trial. In either case, however, more, more people um, relapsed or discontinued after moving into the phase that had um, actual placebo in their, in their treatment regimen. So as we think about our expectations, Simply the expectation of perhaps being on placebo could have accounted for some of the dropouts in that trial in the second phase, even though they weren't actually receiving placebo. And similarly, a meta-analysis that was conducted, which is the last bullet on this slide, a meta-analysis that looked at all treatment trials to date in a, in a large-scale analytic method showed that after antipsychotics or interventions for dementia were discontinued, um, there tended to be a worsening after discontinuation um, overall if you look at most studies. Now that can be interpreted in two ways. That in fact, if you stop a medication, it, it may have been helping and therefore the person does worse. It's also possible that the person does worse after the medicine's discontinued because they know they're no longer receiving a treatment that they had expectations for. So I think we need to think very carefully as we consider all of these treatment trials that there may be effects both of being in the trial and being in a certain phase of the trial or simply stopping a given trial and knowing that treatment is no longer being given. So I think thinking about that whole context helps us both interpret the studies as well as sometimes understand why what we see in clinical studies doesn't always match what we see in clinical practice. And I think that's probably the single biggest problem in the field of geriatric mental health is that some of the practices that we do in the clinical setting are not supported by research. And it may simply be that we have differences in the way that we are assessing and making our choices that we simply need to understand. And I think one way that we can help achieve that understanding is to focus as much as we can on individual target symptoms. This may give us a way to document what we're seeing as opposed to using very large scales like, for example, as we look at the phase one study again of the clinical 
antipsychotic treatment intervention effectiveness trial, the KD trial for AD. As we look in phase one of that trial, which compared quetiapine, olanzapine, and risperidone to placebo in phase one, if we look at overall clinicians' global impression of change, we can see just within phase one that there was slight improvement in individuals receiving olanzapine and risperidone compared to placebo on their total MPI, neuropsychiatric inventory scale. So that would be a total, more global scale. And now if we look at the clinician's global impression of change, risperidone showed improvement in phase one, or rather patients on or participants on risperidone had greater improvement on the CGIC than um, participants who were on other medicines or placebo. So now if we look though at individual symptom factors, if we look within the BPRS scale, the Brief Psychiatric Rating Scale, we can see specifically in that trial there was improvement associated with olanzapine and risperidone on the hostile suspiciousness factors within that scale within the phase one of treatment. And similarly, risperidone showed improvement on the psychosis factor within the brief psychiatric rating scale. And if we look at individual target symptoms, we can also see places where target symptoms may not improve. And in the olanzapine arm in that phase one, the more withdrawn depression factor actually showed um, more worsening with olanzapine than the other treatment arms. So I think where this, where this helps us is, and again, this is in the David Sulzer group paper, it helps us understand that oftentimes medications, if we have a very specific target symptom of interest, that permits us to look at individual symptom response that may help us tailor the symptoms that are relevant to a given patient as opposed to drawing conclusions about large groups of patients, which was a challenge in the KDAD study to look at the entire group and determine if any one medication had a specific superior effect, which it did not. But if we look at individual hostile suspiciousness or psychosis, we tend to see a bit of a signal for lanzapine risperidone effects in that particular target symptom. And I think in clinical practice, for any patient, Rather than thinking about just our global impressions or the global scales, thinking about what is it that I'm specifically targeting for this patient, not just behaviors, but drill down a little bit. Is that behavior reflecting psychosis? Is it reflecting suspiciousness? Or is it simply reflecting disinhibition or resistiveness to cares or disruptive vocalizations? To think about what exactly is my target so that when I do a follow-up, I'm looking specifically at that target and how the medication or other intervention has um, changed the scenario or been associated with a change. Now, if we take those KDAD results and think about them in view of some larger sort of meta-analytic results, we can turn to a Cochrane Review summary that looked at most of the large clinical trials occurred in the early 2000s 
And so this meta-analysis um, combined 16 studies that had very large samples that were conducted at that time. And through a meta-analytic procedure, the review concluded that if you look specifically at the target of aggression, that risperidone and olanzapine do show some differential efficacy relative to placebo. And if you look specifically at the target symptom of psychosis, there is a signal for risperidone compared to placebo. So I think even if we reflect back to our context that there is no FDA approval for these medicines um, in the larger context, at a minimum at least it gives us some reassurance that we can reflect on these review analyses and we can, in some ways, sort of explain our medication choices by looking at some of these meta-analyses and saying, I see that there is evidence for improvement in psychosis with, say, risperidone or improvement in aggression with risperidone or lanzapine compared to placebo. At least it helps us explain and think about our treatment choices even in the absence of an FDA indication that um, requires us to prescribe off-label. So when we think in this way about what are the signals of medication effects, there is a more recent analysis to update us. Now we don't have as many large uh, medication studies that have happened in the last several years um, relative to the early 2000s, but we do have some new studies that have included some of the newer agents, including aripiprazole, and through meta-analytic techniques, again, um, there are continuing to see some very small but statistically significant benefits, again, for olanzapine risperidone, and now also a small signal for aripiprazole. Um, however, it's very difficult to really draw a conclusion other than there is a small signal for a benefit, but there's no clear guidelines in the absence of an FDA indication for really treatment parameters, including dose ranges. And so conclusions really can't be drawn as to what's the best minimum dose or what exactly in terms of dose and duration is needed to achieve efficacy. That leaves us to clinical judgment in the vast majority of these treatment decisions but one way that we can reflect and at least consider um, what the data do show is that if we look back to the Katie Alzheimer's trial that compared olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone, the trial was very intriguing in its design in the sense that the treatment clinicians in the study were given blinded, it was a blinded study, both um, patient and clinician blinded, they were given study capsules, but they did not know whether the capsules that were being given were olanzapine, quetiapine, or risperidone. And they were asked to give study capsules in BID increments that they could increase at certain intervals depending on whether they were seeing any evidence of you know problems in tolerability or seeing any evidence of treatment effects. In that blinded fashion, doses were achieved prior to moving on to the second phase or prior to discontinuation from the study. And the mean doses that were reached in the phase one of that study in a blinded fashion 
were only 5.5 on average, these are mean calculated doses, 5.5 olanzapine, 56 milligrams, 56.5 of quetiapine, and just 1 milligram a day of risperidone. Now it's very, very interesting to think about that, that those were the average doses achieved where there was an efficacy versus side effect judgment on whether to continue. I would argue, and clinical judgment from, from many of you may help weigh in on this, whether these seem to be at the low end, my perception is that most clinicians would perceive this to be at the low end of treatment. And that helps us think a little bit about our context of care. When we have different expectations from medicines, we may tend to continue to increase doses in a way that perhaps lends itself to more medication exposure and more adverse events when in fact efficacy may not be catching up or our treatment signal may not be catching up. So it's very important to consider how low these doses were and these were in a blinded fashion being used by clinicians who were simply looking for efficacy versus um, problems in tolerability. Now when we select medications and we think about dose and duration, we also, particularly in the long-term care setting, have to think about our monitoring and our selection process in reference to CMS regulations, clearly. So most of us are very familiar with the importance of documenting that we've evaluated for a medical source or delirium and that we've used non-drug options um, to the extent that is, is possible for a given environment and resources. And with that, we should try to avoid using antipsychotics in general. And when we do, we should identify target symptoms that are clearly in need of treatment by representing a concern about safety. Now, we should be very much cognizant that we need appropriate treatment targets that include, you know, aggression or psychosis, which would include hallucinations or delusions, um, as well as any type of severe distress that impairs safety, either through physical agitation or other factors that um, create a concern about safety of the individual or others. Now, these are the treatment targets by CMS, which may or may not be part of some of our standard diagnostic criteria when we use the DSM or other ways of documenting. Aggression is not easily something that fits into a diagnostic category. So I think we are always facing challenges in terms of documentation on how best to record what we're seeing and be sure that we don't fail to capture what we're seeing by simply coding a billing diagnosis. And then we have to be very cognizant that inappropriate treatment targets um, can include simply restless wandering or nervousness or being uncooperative. Um, and so we need to be careful that we are documenting target symptoms and target symptoms that are in line with the regulatory appropriate use of antipsychotics. 
Now, I think particularly the long-term care setting gives us an opportunity to really think about the expectations and the environmental context of a given individual and really sort of the, the end-of-life scenario or the goals of care in the long-term care setting, I think absolutely have to be considered when we're looking at the environmental and perception picture of the person receiving care. And I think there's a very important or very helpful study that was published within the last couple years that took a look at sort of the use of antipsychotics in dementia patients over the long haul and looking at nursing home admission as well as time to death. So sort of looking at the perspective of the whole end of life trajectory or the later stages of dementia and how medications interact with what we see over longer term outcomes that perhaps exceed what shorter term clinical trials have been able to document for us. And this study concluded that when we take a look at antipsychotic medications over the long haul in the person with dementia, if you account for the presence of psychiatric symptoms, including the, the occurrence of psychosis and agitation, that it's actually the symptoms themselves are linked to placement in a nursing home as well as risk of mortality in and, in and of themselves even after you adjust for use of medications in that scenario the fact that a person has developed psychosis or behavioral disturbance in dementia independently is a risk factor for progression to nursing home placement and mortality and that is independent of the effect of antipsychotic medication. So I think when we look at the overall picture, again, it's important to look at the influence of symptoms themselves on risk of mortality and progression, as well as the effect of the medications we use trying to treat the symptoms. This Lopez study would conclude that after you control for the effect of the, the neuropsychiatric syndrome that you're seeing in dementia, that's what's incurring the mortality and morbidity risk, not the antipsychotics themselves. So I think through a better understanding of all of the factors that come into play in the complex person with dementia, I hope that over time we'll be able to, to fully appreciate these different influences in a way that gives us guidelines for care and in fact gives us appropriate indications for care that helps standardize treatment in a way that helps the patients, helps their caregivers, and, and helps optimize outcomes for the field. So now as we try to think through, what would our recommendations be sort of globally for the field on what is the best approach to behavioral disturbances in dementia? I think it's very clear that we absolutely have to start with a non-pharmacologic intervention or determine if a behavioral approach may have positive effects. Um, and we know that these unfortunately are not utilized to the extent that perhaps they could be in clinical practice. So I think we need to think about barriers in workforce and training so that we have more resources to really work through how can we help the environment 
implement approaches to care that help us from a non-pharmacologic perspective and really until we can address some of the workforce issues to help be able to implement those types of interventions, I think we will always have to move along and think about how we can supplement with medications as indicated for a given patient. So I think one of our first recommendations as a field of individuals providing mental health care to the elderly is to try to enhance our workforce in a way that helps gather individuals with the resources and training to help standardize non-pharmacologic interventions for all older per persons with dementia and behavior problems. Short of that, however, we do have to consider that antipsychotic medications do have evidence for modest effects in these conditions, particularly in the context of symptoms of psychosis or, as we saw in the Cady study, hostile suspiciousness specifically. So using target symptoms like psychosis um, might help us along with very close involvement in an interprofessional team that looks at family, caregiver, and environmental expectations of a given intervention will probably lead us to the best outcomes. And we have to, of course, follow all the basic practices of what's the best lowest effective dose. We need to monitor frequently and taper whenever we can per CMS guidelines. And also think about carefully the cost benefits of any treatment that we implement, medication or otherwise. And I think it all leads to really the quality equation that's in my initial slide and really balancing the quality of life and thinking about what expectations do we have for behavior in a given patient and what are the needs for the caregiving environment to provide safety for the caregivers and the patient and what are the long-term goals for a given patient and that helps us interpret what's acceptable for that patient and family in terms of the risks of treatments versus benefits because the care that we prescribe really has to match what the patient agrees as their values and life story and what they want for the rest of, of their life at that time of the intervention. And so really, you know, ample communication with the family, including the risks and benefits of a given intervention placed against the context of harm that may be occurring in the um, untreated state for a given behavior. And think about morbidity and safety in the larger context. And I really think that the interprofessional engagement, and by interprofessional that includes the patient and family, um, will really lead us to the most beneficent care and the most optimal outcomes for, for our population. So with that, I will conclude the geriatric lecture series for today that attempts to deal with some of the behavior problems associated with advancing illness in Alzheimer's dementia and related dementia conditions. Thank you.